team, and welcome to episode 301 of the Simply Fit podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Melissa Risk. Melissa is an eating disorder specialist with a PhD in cognitive neurosciences. After decades of battling her own eating disorder, Melissa has come full circle and now lives a life free of eating disorders and helps others to do the same. The prevalence of challenges when it comes to our relationship with food, exercise, and our bodies is huge. So if you've ever experienced any of these, this will be a great lesson for you. In this episode, you can expect to learn what does normal eating actually look like, how we can achieve our biologically appropriate weight, along with what are some of the best practices for improving your relationship with your body, food, and exercise. So without further ado, Dr. Melissa Risk. Dr. Melissa Risk, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm fantastic. How are you? I am excellent. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited about this conversation. So before we dive in, I'd like to give the listeners a little bit of context of who I'm speaking with today. So could you let us know a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do? So I'm an eating disorder specialist. I work with individuals who suffer from eating disorders, mainly uh, mainly women, but I do have uh, male clients. And I have a master's in sports nutrition and sports physiology as well, which also helps me in my work because a lot of patients whom I work with actually exercise. Amazing. And where did the journey begin for you from a personal standpoint? Was it something that you were always inspired by from a young age? Or is it something that came to you via a personal journey? Where did your interest in eating disorders and things like that begin? Wow, that is a super interesting question. Actually, if I were to look at my academic path, it looks a lot like my specific life, my own life. Uh, I started my studies in uh, nutrition and dietetics. I loved the major. And then I went into a master's in sports nutrition and sports physiology because I was an athlete myself. Uh, I used to be part of the National Federation of Athletics in Lebanon. I used to be uh, the Lebanese champion in 5K, 10K, half a marathon. Marathon, I had. I was a record holder in 2011. So I studied that and I was applying it practically. And then you do need to know that uh, in parallel, I used to suffer from an eating disorder starting the age of 14. And since in the Middle East, we did not have any professionals in the field, uh, I decided after my master's in sports nutrition and sports physiology to go into the eating disorder field. And hence why I traveled to Paris. I, I did a PhD in cognitive neuroscience, specialized in eating disorders. I also got treated for that. And then eventually I went to the UK, had a master's in the psychopathology of eating disorder, which allows me to call myself an eating disorder counselor. And so it's it's basically my own journey that uh, allowed me at a certain point to follow my academic path and be in the professional field I am today. What an amazing journey. And can we go back a little bit, if you don't mind, to your specific eating disorder what did that look like as a 14 year old child because I know it starts early for a lot of us who do experience eating disorders so I want to know what it looked like for someone who's kind of gone through the entire process of going from experiencing an eating disorder to now being someone who treats people with eating disorders what did that look like from the evolution of being a teenager with an eating disorder into studying and helping the people you do today yeah, well, technically, a lot of the patients whom I work with were diagnosed at that age, uh, which is puberty, around 14 to 18 years old. This is a period in which we are very vulnerable. Uh, we're going through a lot of physical changes, psychological changes, and, and this is a vulnerable period uh, in which if someone suffers like 
is predisposed to have an eating disorder, then they would be much more at risk during that phase of their lives. So I, I, my eating disorder started with a restrictive disorder, which is usually what happens, which was anorexia nervosa. And then slowly, uh, because I wasn't treated properly, it mutated to bulimia nervosa. Now, there's a misconception that people who suffer from bulimia nervosa usually uh, self-induce vomiting as a compensatory behavior. That is absolutely not true. Uh, my, comp- my main compensatory behavior was over-exercising and hence why, uh, and I'm a perfectionist as well, which you would find this is a very common personality trait and eating disorder. And so I used my perfectionism and I used my over-exercise to actually go into the field of athletics. And so that's how eventually I went into the field. But at a certain point, uh, you get to realize you can't go on uh, when you have an eating disorder and you're not nourishing yourself properly while you are exercising. You're exhausted all the time. uh, You're burned out. uh, You can't go on with exercising, which hence the importance of the nourishment. And that's when I said I couldn't go on like this. And I decided to uh, get treated for my eating disorder. And, And I also needed to stop competitive athletics because that was an obstacle to my recovery. So would you say that's the primary reason that you didn't continue with your athletic career because of the eating disorder? Yeah, absolutely. I had to stop and I had to focus on my mental health. And and being in a competitive uh, environment, that was very hard because you tend to push yourself to limits. You have to over-exercise. I mean, compared to uh, the general population, athletes already exercise much more. And I had to tune down that exercising in order to um, not use physical activity as a compensatory behavior. Hence why I had to stop the competitive field. Yeah, I'm very curious about that part because obviously the athletics must have given you a huge reward. You know, there's nothing better than beating your personal bests and improving and all this type of stuff. So did it get to a stage in which the return on the investment from the athletic side of things became not as valuable compared to the challenge that your life was going through when you were experiencing the eating disorder? Because I suppose it was kind of on a balance. And at one point you were just like, you know, the gains I'm getting from this can't be worth the trade-offs I'm getting from this. So was that the point of realization? You're like, I have to stop here because even though I, I assume you still loved athletics, even though it was a challenge with the eating side of things and nourishing yourself, was it, yeah, did it get to a point in which you're like, I just can't anymore. It's just not worth it. You know, technically, moderate exercise is associated to so many benefits. We're talking about uh, physical and mental health, confidence, uh, cardiovascular health. Uh, There's a mood regulator. I always say that my, my running is my mood regulating pill. So if it were to be moderate then I would have definitely been able to manage my eating disorder recovery in parallel to exercising. But because it was a competitive training, because uh, also in athletics, uh, your weight is extremely important. You can't gain weight. You can't. And and that's a huge pressure for someone who is recovering from an eating disorder. You have to put the weight aside while you're recovering. And in athletics, you will always need to keep a low weight. And that was the biggest issue second to uh, me not being nourished well in parallel and hence if I were I mean if I wasn't in the competitive field and I would have managed to balance my exercise then definitely I I would have been able to keep the exercise in parallel to to the recovery but because it was intensive and I I needed to over exercise then um, I couldn't do both at the same time knowing that today I am a I would say I I still run Uh, I run 
five days a week. I, I run for all the reasons, but weight control and um, I'm living a normal life. I'm an intuitive eater. So I was able later on to manage moderating my exercise and keep it in my daily life. That's super encouraging. And I want to go into that a little bit later because I think that that gives a lot of people hope who are in a position now where they maybe still have some body composition goals. They have goals to continue with exercising, but I'm hearing a lot of the time when people go through that recovery that, you know, the prescription is usually to good move away from exercise, which is obviously something that might be worth doing in the early stages whilst you're in recovery. But it's so good to hear that you can integrate it on a pretty damn regular basis. Five times a week is nothing, you know, nothing easy whatsoever. But like you said, you're doing it for all the other reasons that isn't body composition, which probably allows you to have a much more healthy relationship with it as well. And the question I have for you is probably something that you see a lot of the time as well, the people you work with, they have to take a step in order to work with you. And usually that's a huge, huge step. You mentioned that you got to a point in which you started to reach out to get help. What did that moment look like? And what gave you the courage to take that first step to start working on your eating disorder? Okay. Yes, it does take a lot of, a lot of courage to take that first step and say, I, I need help. I can't do it on my own. And I really need someone to help me with this. You know, in order to ask for help, I have three types of clients and they're all in kind of a certain denial. The first denial is they don't even know what an eating disorder is. They're not aware of it. And so hence, they don't know that they suffer from it. The second kind of denial is they do know that they suffer from an eating disorder, but they couldn't care less to get treated because it allows them, at least in their minds, it allows them to control their weight and keep a certain body uh, shape and image. So they really don't want help. Usually this particular group will start asking for help when they start gaining weight. So they come to me after having gained weight and knowing that they can't do it on their own. And technically we have the third group. So technically, the third group is a group that knows that they suffer from an eating disorder, do want to get help, but uh, are extremely scared and anxious to ask for help because they have absolutely no clue what recovery means. And a lot of times they have the misconception that recovery means gaining weight, which is not necessarily the case. Uh, it depends on, on the particular case. But these are the three types of clients usually that will come to see me. and eventually. Uh, when uh, my first session is an assessment session with my patients, a lot of them who are scared talk to me on the phone or, or by message before setting the first assessment session saying, I'm not sure that I need this. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm ready. How long would it take? And the best usually advice I give them is, you know what, let's have an assessment session and uh, let me know about all your history. And at the end of the session, you could tell me, Melissa, I'm not comfortable doing this. I'm not ready to do this because there's a big need for readiness and in order to be able to change at a certain point. Or I would say, or by the end of the session, you can tell me, okay, I'm ready. I want to do this and let's go for it. So there's, there's this sense of collaborative relationship that you would set when you do the first assessment session that will give the patient a sense of motivation and a sense of hope that they can recover from this and from this really serious brain disorder. And knowing that I give them the priorities and I show them the map for their recovery gives them a big sense of uh, relief. As for me, well, I was dating someone back then and it was 
I mean, when you suffer from an eating disorder, everyone around you suffers from that eating disorder. Um, for example, if I were to be, if I, if I used to binge on a Friday, I can promise you that that meant that the weekend was completely messed up, that I would need to isolate. I couldn't stand going out and seeing people and socializing and wearing clothes. And that affects significantly your family and your partner. And so back then, my partner told me that uh, they couldn't take it anymore and that they needed me to do something about it. And that is when I said, okay, Melissa, enough is enough. You definitely need help because this is affecting all your relationships and definitely affecting your daily quality of life. And, and that is when I, uh, I was ready to ask for help. Wow. Yeah, that must have taken a lot of bravery. And what age was that? Because you mentioned your eating disorder came at the age of 14. At which point did you choose to reach out for help? 26 years old. Oh, wow. So it's a 12-year process before you decided to take that step. Absolutely. Again, you can be pushed into recovery. That's not a good idea. You can be manipulated or convinced into recovery. That's not a good idea. There's a big sense of readiness that needs to come from within the individual. If not, it's going to be very hard to get through the whole recovery because technically, and, and you need to understand that if you suffer from an eating disorder, we say that we, I mean, a person survives an eating disorder. This is how challenging the recovery can be. And if you're not ready to take it two steps forward, one step back, then it's going to be hard to keep it on the long run. Absolutely. And it's great that you use such strong terminology because I think that sometimes that's underestimated. And I was speaking to a specialist not too long ago who also focuses on eating disorders and had her own battle with them as well. And she mentioned, you know, when it comes to eating disorders, because it's not something you can tangibly hold or visibly see, and there isn't so much you know, conversation around it is very easy to say you've got issues with your blood pressure or you've got a broken arm but it's not very easy to say something like that it doesn't get the kind of real credit it deserves and i say credit in the sense of the importance of it so it's great that you are using the term largely you also mentioned that it's a disease of the brain was that right as well Yes, it is a brain disorder. It's an official psychiatric brain disorder, but I don't like to use the word psychiatric. It's a brain disorder like any mental disorder. It can be healed in a way. Mm. Yeah, I think it's beautiful that you use that type of terminology. Yeah, thank you. And on that note as well, so, but I want to, yeah, make a smooth transition onto obviously the work that you do today. And something that you uh, beautifully put is health is a complete state of harmony of the body, the mind, and the spirit. Can you go into what you mean by this? Okay. Technically, I believe that when you want to consider uh, managing your health, it has to be a holistic approach. And if I were to look at a holistic approach as a, a human state, you cannot but take into consideration the three most important areas, which are the physical, the mental and the spiritual. And when you take all of these into account, then you can manage a person's health on all levels. Because if there is an imbalance in between one of those three areas, it's that, that health state is not going to last for a long time. And my goal when I help my patients, and I usually tell them this in, in the first session, I tell them, I want to be the last person who speaks to you about food, and nutrition and eating disorders and physical activity. I want to give you all of the knowledge that you need, that you will be able to carry on your whole life, because that will be the basis of, of your health and your quality of life and your daily quality of life. 
in my first assessment session, I would tell my my patient that I want to officially become the be the last person who speaks to them about about nutrition and eating disorders and and how to manage their health, their physical health, their mental health, exercising, because technically I want to give them all of the knowledge I have in order for them to manage their life and their health for a lifetime. So, um, and and that definitely needs a holistic approach, hence my definition of health. Absolutely. And I'm curious to hear about the mind and spirit side of things, especially the spirit. How do you tie that into someone's recovery? The body and the mind, those two things kind of make a lot of sense, even from just a very typical health and fitness journey. But when it comes to both improving our health and body composition, our relationship with food, our relationship with our body, how does the spirit play a role in that? Spirituality is extremely important for an individual and it doesn't matter what religion you come from because usually when you think of uh, spirituality you you think of religion no technically spirituality is a sense of you being connected with a higher power whether it's a god uh, or the universe doesn't matter but this sense of connection gives you a sense of faith and hope into having a positive mindset into having faith in what's going to happen in your life into having the into believing that even if things are uncertain you will be able to manage no matter what happens and knowing that if you learn how to pay attention and hence why there's the physical and the mental health that are involved in spirituality you learn how to pay attention to the current moment whether it's on a mental or a physical path and when you pay attention you get to understand that doesn't matter how bad your past was and doesn't matter how uncertain and scared you are about your future but at this specific moment you know you're okay and that you're going to be okay and this sense of grounding and the sense of faith and hope is at the basis of your resilience in terms of physical and mental health hence the importance of working on the spiritual part I absolutely love that. I've not heard it that much before, but you're absolutely right in the sense of, I think that when people get to that stage, it's not only with eating disorders, but even with the people that I work who have maybe gotten fairly overweight, they've tried 112 diets that have not gone successfully. They do lose that faith in not only themselves, but they just kind of don't feel that they've got any support from anything or anyone. But like you said, coming back to that present moment to have a belief that there's something that is giving them signs that's showing them the way i think that that can be incredibly incredibly impactful whether it's like you mentioned a god that you believe in or a higher power whatever it is or whatever you choose to call it i think the most important thing is that you have that sense of belief that it's not just you on your own but you've got something else to rely on lean on as well i think that's a beautiful aspect because of we can again physically see our physical well-being and our health but we can also get an idea of our mental now but to connect with that higher power as well is a nice step that I don't think a lot of people include within that process. And when going through your personal process in terms of the steps that you take with the clients you work with, you mentioned that you normalize the potentially dysfunctional eating patterns. What does it look like to normalize eating patterns and what are normal eating patterns, quote unquote? 
All right, fantastic. That's also a very important question. So whenever I start working with a client, I have to have an idea of the diagnosis. Now, usually we don't, I couldn't care less whatever the label is of the disorder, but usually we divide them in terms of restrictive patterns of eating or overeating and binge, binging patients. Now, for the restrictive patients, we have different priorities than for the bingers. For the restrictive patients, we have three major priorities. First of all, stop the weight loss. That's important. Secondly, get to their thinnest, healthiest weight. Usually, we, um, there's something that we call the biological appropriate weight. And that's a kind of natural set point that we inherit genetically. So the goal is to get to that weight and, and keep it. And hence, the third priority is maintain your thinnest, healthiest weight. Now, usually people who are restrictors for a while could suffer from amenorrhea. And I'm talking about women, of course. With men, they would suffer from a low uh, concentration of testosterone. Usually, one of the major proofs that they have arrived to their thinnest, healthiest weight is for women having their period again, and for men getting to normal levels of testosterone. Now, this is how we treat restrictive eaters. As for the bingers, we have two major priorities. Priority number one is normalize their eating patterns. Now, your question was twofold. How do we normalize and what is normal eating? How do we normalize? Well, technically, I have to have a realistic idea of how they're eating to understand uh, the triggers of their binges, to understand how they compensate, to understand their lifestyle, uh, how does exercising isn't how is exercising involved, how is their work involved, are they working from home, etc. So, how do I do this? Initially, after my first session, by the end of the first session, I tell them, okay, you have to download an application that is meant for eating disorder, where you're you're going to log your food and your emotions and consider it like a diary. And I tell them by the end of the session, you leave the session as if you did not see me today. So they go on with their lives, obviously, as the least wise possible because they know I'm going to be checking the logs. But by the end of the first week, I would already start having an idea of what I need to normalize. And normalizing is making sure that they slowly stop using eating disorder behaviors whether it's binging uh, or compensatory behaviors that could be very dangerous, like self-induced vomiting, laxative, diuretic abuse, or enema abuse. Also, you have other compensatory behaviors like over-exercise, chewing and spitting, restricting food. So all of these will need to be normalized. And then eventually the second priority would, would be get to their biological weight. And usually... A lot of people who suffer from bulimia nervosa are already at their biologically appropriate weight. But people who suffer from binge eating disorder usually are at a higher weight. And we can slowly manage to normalize their eating pattern. And sometimes just by doing that, they can start managing their weight and losing weight. Now, as for the question about normal eating, <laughs> it's very interesting. Um, I have a very nice reference uh, that I usually use with my patients, but there is no one sentence that defines normal eating. So I could give you a few uh, ideas of what normal eating is. Normal eating is flexible. It's not rigid. It means that technically, uh, yes, you can decide to be more on the healthy eating side. But if you are in an outing where there is no salads involved, where you're going out for pizza or for burgers, or you're going out for a barbecue with friends, you can manage to eat and enjoy your time and uh, not feel like if you're too rigid, you would say, no, 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 I'm not going to eat anything and I'll go back home eat. 
So that's the flexibility that we're looking for. It's also a matter of moderation. So when it comes to moderation, it's um, not being restrictive, but not also binging. It's, it's learning how to moderate your eating, knowing that a part of normal eating is overeating at times and feeling stuffed and uncomfortable. But also at times it means undereating and wishing you had more. So, and these are all parts of normal eating. So it's learning how to balance this and not catastrophize a binge episode, for example, or an overeating episode. That's important. And finally, which is extremely important, there's a sense of variety with food. If you don't vary your food, then eventually you could fall into the trap of getting bored with your food and hence putting yourself at risk of overeating and binging on food you usually don't eat. And the variety does not necessarily uh, remove completely all food groups. So it means varying with your protein, varying with your complex carbs, varying with your fats, varying with your fruits, vegetables, the colors that you're adding, and also varying with the processed sugar that you want to have because we're all human and we are all living in the 21st century where at any point on your phone, on your screen, on TV, while you're walking down the street, you are bombarded with a thousand uh, that have to do with processed food and processed sugar. So completely removing that group is impossible, at least on the long term. So varying also includes from time to time having that bar of chocolate or having that pack of candy or having that dessert and enjoying it and not feeling guilty about it and moving on with your life. So if I were to sum up normal eating, it is flexible, it is varied, it's moderate, it's and technically it it depends on your schedule how close you are to food, because when you're, when you're home, obviously you're going to be eating a bit more and your feelings as well. Emotional eating is part of normal eating. So that too. I think that's amazing to hear because of what I've been able to take away from exactly what you said there is that all of these behaviors that seem dysfunctional once every now and again on the occasional basis, there's nothing wrong with it. And you're absolutely right. You know, we all overeat from time to time. We all undereat from time to time. We all have processed foods from time to time. And we all eat more when it's convenient. We eat more when we're emotional, et cetera. But I think the key to recognize is that it's when it's done on a repetitive nature, right? And it's where we're kind of controlled by those urges to overeat, to undereat, to emotionally eat. That's when it becomes a challenge essentially, right? True. I agree. It's all about the frequency of it. I mean, you were saying something, I mean, you said sometimes you all overeat every single Sunday when I go to see my grandma, I can promise you, I leave her house feeling completely uncomfortably full <laughs> and because I don't know what's the, what's wrong with the situation, but every time she sees, she sees me, she believes that I've lost weight. <laughs> so yes, and that is part of normal eating, but technically it's definitely about the frequency. So if I were to eat emotionally, because it is absolutely normal to eat emotionally, we all eat sometimes because we are happy, sad, or bored, or just because it feels good. This is normal. But if it's recurrent, if it's happening more than two to three times a week, if it's ending up in a binge episode, then that is problematic. It's just about learning how to, first of all, be aware when you're emotionally eating and know what's the definition of emotionally eating. and then having the sense of wanting to take the decision to emotionally eat or not. Of course, and that depends on your weight goals, your body composition goals, where you are in, in, your, in your life, what you want to, what are your major health goals. But definitely being aware is, is step one and that allows you to control. But I wouldn't say the word control. I would say more the word regulate what's going on on a meeting level. 
and managed to take that decision consciously. Yeah, I completely yeah, I completely agree. One of the best signs I see with my clients, especially on a long-term basis, when they're really starting to gain a healthy relationship with food is that they will point these things out to me. They're like, I emotionally, A, I gave myself permission to, I didn't give myself a hard time. And then I just got straight back to what I would like to be doing on a day-to-day basis based on the current goals I have. And you're absolutely right. It's just about saying, okay, this is what it is. And I'm laying it out. It's because it's once we start hiding it or we start you know, feeling bad from doing it or not giving ourselves permission. Again, that's another sign of the problematic aspects of it coming into play. It's the same way that frequency can also be problematic. Yes, absolutely. Uh, what you're saying is super important. And, you know, usually when people want to lose weight, we have a huge meta-analysis that show us that the individuals who lose weight will tend to gain it all back if and even more after two to five years, 95% of them will tend to do that. However, it was always very interesting to look at those, the 5% of people who haven't gained the weight back after five years. And you would see that a big part of what allowed them to keep the weight off was the flexibility to say, okay, I needed that extra bar of chocolate. I needed that extra cup of rice or that piece of bread that I'm not allowing myself to eat. I needed it. That was, uh, I gave myself permission to eat it and I'm going to go back on track. And that's the importance of the flexibility, because if you don't have that flexibility and you have very rigid rules, I'm not allowed to eat carbs. Then the second you will eat carbs because that's inevitable. You will have at a moment, a period in which you're going to eat carbs. If you're very rigid about it, then breaking that very rigid rule for you could get you into what we call the what the hell response. Oh, what the hell? I ate my carbs. So you would go into a a spring of eating, binging on carbs because in your mind, it's I already broke that rule. Let me allow myself to do it as much as I can because tomorrow I'll start restricting again or Monday, you know, international dieting day, I'll start restricting again. And hence the importance of being kind to ourselves, being compassionate and having the flexibility to say, okay, I haven't ruined anything. I needed, uh, I needed whatever I needed, that piece of bread, those carbohydrates, and I'm going to move on and go back to uh, my, my, my routine that used to work for me when it comes to a healthy, healthy eating pattern. So, and hence the, the importance of the flexibility. If at a certain point, you can talk to yourself and have that compassion and that kindness to say, you know what? I needed those extra carbs today and I'm happy I had them. They tasted wonderful. I'm not secretly eating them from anyone, including secretly eating them from myself. And I'm going to move on. Tomorrow is a new day and I'm going to go back to my healthy eating patterns. And that's it. I haven't broken any rule. Hence the importance of the flexibility. Yeah, I could not agree more with that. And that's been my experience as well with not only my clients, but my own eating patterns too. I think that that's what a lot of my clients now start to look up to me for. They're like, you look like you live such a normal life, yet you're able to maintain your health and well-being and your shape. And I'm like, well, yeah, this is the dream. This is what I want for all of you. But it's not this distant dream that no one can get hold of. It's available to everyone. We've just got to get to that place in which we're able to give ourselves that permission, recognize that 
these things, like you said, are normal. It's just when they're done on a frequent basis in fear and based on a rigid set of rules that then they become problematic, as you said. And one of my favorite posts of yours, actually, I think you're holding like a chicken leg, for example, and you're telling your followers about all the things that you are able to eat and that you're allowed to eat. And I think that something becomes very problematic is we see so many people on social media, for example, or certain coaches or whatever, and they're saying, I only intuitive, no, I don't intuitive, it's not the one I want to go for. I only intermittent fast. I only eat vegan. I only do this. I don't eat carbs ever. And there's so many absolutes. And I want to go through how we can start to navigate that. I don't think there's enough people showing their chicken legs on Instagram. So I want to hear your take on how we can get people to focus a little bit more on flexibility and a little less on these kind of really hard and fast, I must not eat X food group. Okay. Funny enough, I was having that chicken leg at my grandma's on a Sunday. <laughs> uh, that's no so, surprise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, okay. All right. Technically, you can end up choosing whatever eating lifestyle you want. Okay. Whether it's intermittent fasting or veganism or becoming a vegetarian, that's, that's something you are free to do. Okay. However, if you are recovering from an eating disorder, I'll, I'll go back to that point. If you're recovering from an eating disorder, then technically removing any food group will be an obstacle to your recovery. And that's what I tell my patients. I say, transition me while you're recovering. Let's make peace with all food groups. Because when you do, then any kind of food product will lose its power. There's no, it's forbidden. Because if it's forbidden, that means that you will obsess about it. And technically, it will have more power over you. But if it's slowly, you know, I'm going to give you an example. A lot of my patients have a big feared food, which is chocolate. And for them, they've banned themselves from eating chocolate. However, slowly, if we were to integrate chocolate in the process of recovery, which is what we call in psychology habituation, you get the fear food and you add it in a food plan where I've managed to add it in a healthy way, then slowly that chocolate will lose its power. And that by the end of the recovery, it, the chocolate bar has the exact same power as an apple. So what I'm trying to say is that in recovery, it is very important not to remove food groups. And it is also extremely important not to have very rigid rules, such as intermittent fasting. Now, this being said, after recovery, you can decide to take on whatever eating pattern you want, knowing that you really need to have done your research and have the proper knowledge about it. I'm going to give you an example. Intermittent fasting, okay? Intermittent fasting has a lot of benefits and I'm not going to go into them, but you need to know that for women, for example, fasting for more than 13 to 14 hours have been, has been proven to uh, interfere with hormonal health and their menstruation and their cholesterol levels. So that's the knowledge that you need. You want to intermittently fast? Fantastic. But as a woman, it's preferable not to do that for more than 14 hours. For example, also, the second knowledge is that intermittent fasting cannot and should not be kept for a long period of time. You can do them in sprouts during the year. So that's the knowledge that you need to have. The second knowledge, for example, I don't know, I'm going to talk about veg vegetarianism. You need to know that if you want to have a, a vegetarian style, then you need to be supplemented in vitamin B12, for example. You need to vary and include foods that are high in protein, but are not qualified as high quality proteins, such as chicken meat, uh, etc. 
So that's the knowledge that you need to have, whatever eating pattern you decide to go for. But while you're in recovery from an eating disorder, then you have to transitionally put all of these aside, learn how to eat normally, and then you have the chance to decide. And a lot of times, Elliot, when they recover from an eating disorder, uh, a lot of times they don't want to go back into another eating pattern, but to eat normally. Yeah, I have no doubt, especially if you can see a way in which you can have everything available to you. I know that that's the approach that you and I live by. And it's like, well, why would I not want to have carbs? You know, if I do want to choose to intermittent fast on a day because it's helpful for my schedule, then great. But why do I want to miss out on breakfast? You know, my preference, and I've told people this before, is like, if I'm going to intermittent fast, I would rather finish my eating window early and then start my eating window early the next day. So rather finish it at like 4 p.m. or something like that. I don't want to miss out on the food in the morning, to be completely honest. And then I think the people who lean into that approach are those super stressed out people who, when their cortisol is already high in the morning, they add that on top. Then they caffeinate themselves as well. And you're like, you're the primary person who should not be doing this. And you know, you're kind of putting yourself into an even worst position, so to speak. And you're wondering why you're overwhelmed, feeling anxious in the morning. And then when it comes to the point where you need to eat, you don't really feel that satisfied and you're craving something more. So, I mean, yeah, the alarm bells start ringing and it's hard to tell people that because they're like, well, it helps me keep my calories within the set window. And I'm like, that's fantastic. But I think we're kind of missing the bigger picture here. You're focusing on the one thing that it does do, but not the 10 or 15 other things that it doesn't do. So I think, yeah, understanding that and giving yourself that freedom and flexibility can be fantastic. Whether you're in eating disorder recovery or not, I feel, I think just having zero food food rules in that sense can be such a liberating feeling for so many of us. You know, yes, I agree with you, but let's, let's, let me share something important. Having zero food rules does not mean not having food discipline and food awareness. Truth. Yeah. Very good point to mention. Exactly. You can have zero rules, but still have a certain food discipline. I mean, if you don't set, I mean, consider a child. If you don't set a certain discipline when it comes to food, then I can promise you the child would want to have, uh, would want to eat anything at any time, knowing that children are very intuitive, zero to seven years old, they're super intuitive. So even if we allow them to eat uh, like chocolate or dessert every single day, they're not going to do that unless they were banned from eating them. You will find that after a week of studying their eating blogs, they're going to have a very balanced eating pattern without needing to set any food rules. However, what usually happens is that you need to have a certain food discipline. I mean, you, for example, with kids, you need to tell them now it's lunchtime and now it's breakfast time and now it's snack time. Okay, because that's the discipline that they will grow into as adults. And adults need food discipline. Not having rules does not mean you don't discipline your meals. You're not aware of the quality of the food, the quantity of the food, your hunger and fullness cues. And that's the importance of being flexible, being moderate and being varied. Yeah, exactly. And I'd like to call them like habits and practices, to be completely honest. Like the habit that I will live by is that more... Often than not, I'll have a protein source with every meal. I'll have some form of salad and veg with every meal. I will eat at similar times during the day on the premise that my work schedule looks similar, you know, and it just comes down to, yeah, habits and practices versus rules. So it's probably a better way to put it because again, it seems less rigid and it also seems a lot more appealing to many people who probably have grown up not wanting to follow rules. So they probably still don't want to when it comes to their food either. 
And usually when I start working on eating habits, I talk to my patients about identity-based habits. That was a term that was uh, created by James Clear, uh, the author of Atomic Habits. I don't know if you know that book. He's a renowned researcher in in habits. And identity-based habits is you want to become the person you identify with, such as, I mean, the goal of creating a habit is not always looking at the final outcome. Like, for example, if I want to lose weight, I want to lose 20, 30 pounds, the the outcome or the motivation shouldn't uh, be, I'm going to lose all of that weight. The motivation in terms of identity-based habit is what would a person that has lost 30 pounds what would they be doing at time T? How would they be eating at time T? That's the person I want to become. So if I want to become that person, what do I need to be doing now? Like, for example, if I know I need to be exercising today and I really don't feel like it, there's no way on earth I'm going to get out of the house if I think, oh, I need to lose 20 pounds. No, but there is a chance at time T if I think, well, the person I want to become would have today said, I'm tired, but um, I need my training routine and I will go to the gym. And hence the importance of the words, the words and the perspective that we use. Habits, a healthy lifestyle, behaviors that you can keep on the long run instead of saying uh, food rules and rigid behaviors and never, you're never allowed to eat this. No. And hence the importance of having food awareness, food discipline, flexibility, and knowing, having an idea, the knowledge of the identity you want to have, and hence the importance of knowledge in whatever eating pattern you want to you wanna follow. A hundred percent. I am definitely on the same page there. And as you mentioned, it all comes down to recognizing that that version of you before is and has to look different from the version of you who is going to live this healthy lifestyle. And I'm very curious about that part because when you were younger, you identified as the athlete. You probably identified as someone who exercised on a very regular basis. I know that you're not so body composition focused now, and maybe you weren't, I'm unsure if it was a big focus of you when you were young as well. But how did you go from personally, because I can imagine a lot of your clients and people listening today have a challenge of that. How did you personally go from identifying as the athlete, as the one who was maybe lean or a certain weight all the time to the person who you needed to be in order to overcome your eating disorder? Yeah, that's a a very nice question. You know, Elliot, uh, when you suffer from an eating disorder for as long as I did, and it's not uncommon, I have lots of patients who suffer from eating disorder for more than four, five, 10 years. The problem is that the eating disorder becomes part of your identity. People look at you and think, oh, that's the healthy eating. What is Melissa eating right now so we can eat like her? So, and there's also me on top of uh, being uh, the, I would say, the healthy eating reference. There's also the fact that I was an athlete as well. And on days I didn't want to exercise, they would be like, wow, you're not exercising today. Are you, I mean, what's wrong with you? And when the eating disorder or being an athlete become part of your identity, then there is a lot of shame involved into changing these, which is automatically going to happen in recovery. When, you know, you you remind me of a time, 
I went to the beach with my mom and uh, the there was a guy, my mom's friend, who hadn't seen me for a while. He had known me while I was in the midst of my competitive career and I was extremely lean and fit. And then he met me, I think five years later, I had gained some weight, I was fully recovered, I was an intuitive eater. And when he saw me, my mom is super happy when, when I'm there because I don't like uh, spending time at this particular place. So when I am there, she just loves to tell everyone that her daughter is there. And she saw that guy and she was like, I'm going to say, I'm going to call him Johnny. Johnny, do you know my daughter? And he just came next to me and he said, wow, you've gained weight. Did you stop running? And I can tell you that in this moment, a lot of shame is involved. And in this moment, I was thinking, Ugh, I have gained weight. Should I have stopped competitive running? Should you even re-question uh, your whole recovery at a certain point? Was it worth it? But then in that moment, you have the chance to reply and you have a chance to reply in a shameful way or in a non-shameful way. The example of replying in a shameful way would have been me saying, have you looked at yourself in the mirror before telling me anything? So that's a shameful way to reply. But then there's the non-shameful way that says, yes, I have gained weight. I am much healthier now and I'm happier. And these are the moments where you look at the bigger picture and you know that everything that you've struggled, everything that you had to stop in terms of athleticism, in terms of letting go of your eating disorder behaviors, because at the point your eating disorder was your best friend, food was always present. It allowed you to cope with everything that was happening in life. In these moments, you understand that you have to let go of that identity and you have to create a new one that has nothing to do with eating disorders, being an athlete, it can, it, it, it can, ha, it, you could have an, a new identity when it comes to, I don't know, becoming a kinder person, becoming, uh, being more active in, in the society, uh, helping other people, just finding an identity that isn't harming you on the long run. Yeah. Sounds like a scary step though, right? Like you've become as you mentioned, best friends with your eating disorder, you've become quite comfortable in your identity. And that's a big thing that I have with the guys that I work with who maybe aren't experiencing eating disorders. Maybe they're experiencing a little bit of disordered eating, but they've come to enjoy being the life of the party, the one who drinks with their buddies all the time, the one who people go out with, the one who's associated as a foodie, for example. And on the other side of that, they don't know who they are anymore. They're like, well, I've grown used to being this person who is the last in the pub at night. I've grown used to this person that everyone contacts to try out the new restaurant with. And if I am not that, then who am I? Absolutely. Absolutely. And hence the importance of digging in and getting to understand that um, your identity has to come from bigger values and beliefs. And, and hence why you will go back to digging in into your core beliefs and values, the ones that you've probably had uh, a long time ago before being identified with those uh, disordered behaviors or extreme behaviors. Absolutely. And I think that that's come full circle in the sense of that's where the mind and the spirit comes into it as well, right? Absolutely. Exactly. It's finding that higher sense of being, being as a human being, being as a, a I don't know, a daughter or a son, a wife, a husband, uh, a parent, 
is getting that new sense of identity that gives you much more meaning to your life than anything else. Absolutely. Melissa, this has been a super valuable conversation and I want to wrap up with just a few questions. So if anyone has been listening to this today and some maybe alarm bells have been ringing or some red flags have come up, what would you advise them in terms of the next step if they think, okay, well, maybe my relationship with food isn't going well right now. And maybe my relationship with my body is not heading in the best trajectory. What advice would you give to them? Well, first of all, I would ask them to be aware of how obsessive and rigid uh, their relationship with the food or their body is. And if it is, and they, if in their gut feeling, they feel that something's wrong, then you have lots of uh, free websites who uh, allow you to fill a questionnaire that helps us with the diagnosis. The questionnaire is called the Eating Attitude Questionnaire, okay? E-A-T, or the Eating Attitude Test. You can take it and then figure out if you do, if you are at a high risk of eating disorder. And if you are, I would definitely recommend that you ask for professional help. Yeah, there's a couple of those questionnaires on your website as well, isn't there? Absolutely, absolutely. There's an E-A-T questionnaire there as well. Perfect. And last question I have for you on a bigger picture scale is what impact do you want to have on the health and wellness industry? Wow. Okay. Uh, The impact I want to have is help people have their best life because that's the only one you have. And that means help them develop a much better quality of life and have a much healthier relationship with food and their bodies because that's the only one they're going to have as well. So I think that would be the higher, higher goal. That's a beautiful answer. And where is the best place for people to find you if they want to keep up with the work that you do and go discover your website and the content that you create? All right. They can find me on Instagram. So I have, it's at Dr. Melissa Risk on Instagram. And from there, they can uh, catch my website and they can contact me by mail, by Instagram. I am, I always reply as fast as I can. Melissa, thank you so much for your time today. This has been an incredibly valuable conversation. Thank you. I really, really enjoyed it as well. Thank you, Elias. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.